If you have your Bibles, go with me again to Hebrews chapter 10. I to encourage you as we get started here this morning that uh, I have a couple things. One is, um, we're not teaching through a book of the Bible right now, and so it is especially important that you, and it's, it's maybe equally important, but I just want to put special emphasis on it, that when, as we are not preaching through a book of the Bible, that you get onto the website on Thursday or Friday and look at the Renovate Us page. So if you go to Renovation Life, underneath there's the Renovate Us tab. And on there um, is, I mean, nine times out of ten, uh, it's, it's up there and ready to go. We tried to announce it on Facebook. But what is on there is the text that we're teaching from on Sunday and some questions to go ahead and jumpstart your heart for Sunday morning. Uh, so it's a way to prepare. It's also important that if we want to be faithful to Scripture and faithful to understanding the Word of God, when I've not had the time to take and set up the entire framework for you in the book of Hebrews, and we're just kind of parachuting in to a text, it's even more important than that that you kind of gather some background and that you maybe do some prep on your own to understand the book of Hebrews. Um, you know, like on Sunday, I encourage you to read at least the entire chapter uh, 10 of the book of Hebrews. Now, I would encourage you that if you see that we're kind of parachuting into the book of Hebrews, to go ahead and read the whole book of Hebrews. Uh, to at least know the, 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 the book context for this morning, because we can't, I mean, I already preached long enough, so if we add like another half hour, 45 minutes of like contextual understanding, we would be here for a long time, like, like all the Pentecostals, right? You know? Uh, be here till 2 o'clock in the afternoon. Uh, last week we were here till one o'clock, so uh, I'm going to try not to preach for an hour and a half this month. Uh, we, sh- we should not be doing that this morning. Um, so I just want to encourage you, renovate us to do that. Secondly, there are so, there's so much application to the text uh, and implications for your life that uh, if all you get out of the text is one little nugget, I, mean, I suppose that is awesome, um, but is still lacking what, all that there is to understand. So I just want to encourage you to take notes so that during this week you can spend time reflecting on the text and spend time studying the text yourself. All right, all that aside, now let me ask you this question. Who are you? Who are you? You don't have to uh, answer that out loud, but think about this with me for just a second as we, as we approach the text. Who are you? How would you define who you are? How would you answer that question? Now pause with that question for just a second. Our actions, as we've been talking about, and I can't rehash too much of, next we- of last week, but our actions reveal our identity. I think it's God in His kindness, if He's given us, if He's helped us be consistent in our lives in any place, it's that what we believe about who we are is always consistent with how we act. So if we reverse that then, if we want to know at the deepest parts of our heart who we think we are, we just need not look any further than how we act. 
our actions are indicators of what's going on inside here. Of what we believe about our identity, what we believe about who we are. And ultimately, what we believe about who we are indicates what we believe about God. About what God's done or what God has not done. So I want to kind of introduce to you kind of four questions, and they should be answered in this order. I would encourage you to write these down. First question is this, who is God? When we're talking about living faithful, dependent, righteous, holy lives, following Christ, we need to ask these four questions. One is, who is God? So I would say this like, the answer, who is God? Well, the gospel is God. But I'm using the gospel when I say that in a more broad context. So I don't mean just specifically the truths about Jesus dying on the cross, paying for our sins, but meaning the Bible. What has God revealed about himself? So who is God? All the truth about God. And we would see that primarily in God's word. But we also know that this truth is good. We know that God is good. But who is God? Question number one. Second question, what has he done? What has he done? Now again, this is gospel. God has done the gospel. He, he carried out the gospel. But also, again, want to not just limit that to God's work through Jesus on the cross, but His work for all time. Creation to future restoration and glorification. Right? So, who is God? What has He done? Third question now. Who are we in light of what God has done? Who are we in light of what God has done? Who are we in light of what God has done? Now, we circle back around to the question that I opened with. Who are you? Who am I? How do we define who we are? Most of us believe that we are what we do. Right? Most of us believe that we are what we do. So you might answer this, like we think that our, who we are flows out of our doing. So we might answer the question, well, who are you? Well, you know, I work at this place, I do this kind of job, or I'm a husband, you know, I, I care for my family. I'm not saying these things are bad, but most of us define who we are by what we do. But I think the Bible turns this upside down and says your doing proceeds from your being. Your doing proceeds from your being. Who you are in is, is the determiner of what you do. What you do comes from who you are. So we need to, so for instance, when we like define who the church is, who is the church? Uh, we define that oftentimes by what the church does. Well, she does missions. She, this is who she is. She cares for the orphans. She, she teaches the Bible. That's what she does, but that, that's not who she is. That's not who the church is. That's not who you and I are. We are not defined by what we do, but what we do does indicate who we are. But it's what we, because what we do flows from who we are, I think is what the Bible would lead us to understand. This is what we saw last week in Ephesians. Paul says, this is who you were, dead in your trespasses. This is who you were. You were enemies of God, so therefore you lived out the pleasures of your flesh. So out of, the, out of who you were came the desire to live the pleasures of your flesh. But then he says, now this is who you are, 
created in Christ now with a new heart, and then out of that now you do these works that God has prepared for you. So our identity always precedes how we live. So three questions, or four questions. One is, who is God? What has He done? Who are we in light of what God has done? And then the fourth question then comes, how should we live? How should we live? I think this is a good, proper, useful framework for us to understand life. Because honestly, much preaching that I hear and much counseling that I hear people giving, when we talk about life, we talk about, like, I want to fix this area of my life, most of us begin with how should we live. So I'm struggling in this area of my life, so I should change how I'm you know, treating that person, or how I'm thinking about the situation. And we, so we start with how we should live. Then maybe some of us get back to, well, who am I? And then now how do I live in light of who I am? And I'm encouraging you to step back two steps further, that if we need to change something in our lives, we need to first understand who is God. And then once we understand who God is, we understand what God has done, and then who we are now in light of what God has done. So again, that takes us away from this behaviorism, shift, like shifts us away from just correcting behavior. The problem for some of us is that maybe our behavior won't change quite as quickly because we're starting to dig a little deeper, but our change will be more lasting because it's being handled at a deeper level. You're not just scratching the surface. So I want you to think through these questions again. I, I know these don't have a whole lot to do with the text here this morning, but I want you to think that's kind of the framework in which we need to begin thinking, not just in this series, but in life overall. So, who God is, what has He done, how do we live in light of what He's done, or I'm sorry, who are we in light of what He's done, and then how should we live? You might even tag that, like how do we live in light of who we are, in light of what God has done, in light of who He is. Does that make sense? Alright. So we want to always tie... Because if we don't tie back our orthopraxy, right, what we do, how we live, tie it back to our orthodoxy, then we're just simply Pharisees, right? So if we don't understand how we live in light of who God is, then we're just simply living out a bunch of rules, and we might as well call ourselves Pharisees. But if we do what we do because this is who God is and who He's created us to be, now we're in a different realm, because then we're going to begin to understand that I can't do what he's called me to do, therefore I need grace. Oh, and by the way, he's provided that grace for me to do that. So, we've been talking about this now, gospel identity. So, God, who God is, we've talked a lot about that in this church. We've talked about what God has done, his work on the cross, work of restoration, so on and so forth. And then through that, for those who have placed their faith in Christ, their identity now is in Christ. Now, that has all sorts of implications for us. Now, again, maybe you want to talk to someone. Let's think about an implication. Maybe you want to talk to someone about their behavior, about what they're doing. They, maybe this, this part of their life, maybe they don't, they don't parent the greatest. Maybe they're harsh with their kids, or, or maybe they're not kind to other people, or maybe they gossip. Instead of giving them pragmatic behavioral stuff like, well, maybe you just need to count to ten before you let the words come out of your mouth, Maybe we should start with who God is and who they are in light of what God has done. 
I think we have to get our theology straight of what we believe about God before we can get our behavior straight, before we will actually live out gospel intentionality. We must believe it to be true. So here's the kicker. For those who are followers of Christ, the Bible spells out very clear for us who we are. Our identity. So you say, well, if that's our identity, then how can my actions don't line up with my identity? I think, it's a gr- I think that's a good question. I think that comes down to what are we believing to be true about our identity. So if our identity is in Christ and He's the ultimate servant, He lived that perfect life as a, life as a servant, but I don't live a life as a servant, but I'm a follower of Christ, what's wrong? I would argue that you don't actually believe that Christ and it was a servant and that you are now a servant in light of him and his identity and your identity in him now. You don't believe that. You don't believe that God has served you, that God is a serving God, that he has demonstrated this ultimately in Christ's self-giving in the gospel. So, I still though want to encourage us that we're trying to understand, that's, that's my son, uh, trying to understand uh, uh, our identity and what are we not believing properly about our identity. So my prayer over the next few weeks, as we, we're going to hit all five of our identities as a church, today is going to be family. And my prayer for us is that you would believe who you are in Christ. Like many of us live defeated, immoral, wrong lives because we don't believe who we are in Christ. Now for some of us, we don't believe that because we are not that. But some of us are followers of Christ and we do not believe the things that we should believe concerning who we are in Jesus. Let's read Matthew 28, 18-20 real quick. It says, And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, and behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. I just want to point out, this is not the text for today, but I want to point out to you what he says in here about baptizing them in the name of. Baptism is all about identity. So you ask the question, well, Jesus didn't need to repent. Why was he baptized? It was for identity purposes. It was for him saying, I am the head of this here, this covenant here, and these will be my people who identify with me. Romans 6, you can read this later, Paul talks about baptism. When you go down and come back up, right? This is why baptism, in part, is not salvific in nature. It does not save us. It does not redeem us because baptism is an identity of uh, exemplifying that which is already true inside of us. So baptism does not change anything. It's just it's symbolizing what has already happened inside of you. And I think that's what we see in part in Romans 6. So spiritually, if you're in Christ, this identity change has already happened. Who you are has been now redefined. And Christians, understand me. Jesus is what defines you now. Not your actions. You hear me? For some of you, like, 
legalistic, control freak, you know, Christians. Like, what you do, good or bad, does not define you. Jesus does. Your identity is in Him and what He has already done. Because understand, that can go two ways, right? It can be just self-defeatism, where I never feel like I measure up to God. Well, give up. You never will. But Christ did. And your identity's in Him. On the flip side of that, you might think, I am earning my favor and my presence with God. Stop. Because you can't. You never will. Jesus did, though. And our identity's in Him. It's not in you. It's in Him. So now as we begin to flesh out our identity, this is going to be our progress, our, our, our kind of our process, rather. We're going to talk through our identity, like who we are in Christ. What do we see? Then we're going to work through examples of how this is worked out in everyday rhythms. Okay? So follow that process. Who we are, how we live. That's going to be our process. Who we are, how we live. And then we're going to follow that up with is in house gatherings. We're going to flesh out even further what does that mean to live that out. So that's going to be a process over the next four weeks, five weeks, counting today. So today we're talking about family. Now, in order to talk about family, we need to understand that God's covenants are always in the context of community. Now, understand, if you go back, and if, and if you guys want a, a very brief crash course on covenants, go back and uh, listen to the Gospel and Covenant, or sorry, Gospel and Kingdom series that we taught here, uh, based or encouraged largely by the book by Robert Vaughn, uh, God's Big picture or God's big whatever it's called. Uh, I forget. It's been a while since I've read it. Uh, Scott, you're reading it right now, aren't you? What's the title of it again? God's big picture. Uh, it's an awesome biblical theology. So it's a theme of gospel and kingdom through the entire Bible. Um, but if we understand it, and it addresses the major co- or the, uh, the covenants rather. So we need to understand one thing I want to point out to you. as we begin to talk about this family thing this morning, we need to understand that God's covenants come in the context of community. The new covenant that God has made with man through Jesus Christ is in the context of community. It's in the context of family. Church, family, the Christian family. The expectation is that the covenant will be lived out in community like Jesus lives in community with the Trinity. Now say, so, all right, so who is God? Well, God is a God of three persons. He lives in community. How does God live? He lives in community with them. Now, what has He done? He's created us to live in community as well. So how do we live? We live in community. We live in relationships. We were not created to live Christian lives apart from other Christian lives. Why? How? Where do we find basis for this? In the Trinity, ultimately. Yes, there's scripture that that we're going to talk about this morning, but why? Because God lives in community. Because God lives in perfect. I I heard a video, I loved this video this past week, until it got to one of the last lines. And this video was talking about salvation. It was a video done by uh, multiple players from the Seattle Seahawks and one of their coaches. Great, great video. Until he gets to the very end, and they're sharing their testimonies, and the guy says... Jesus Christ died on the cross because he couldn't stand to live eternity without you. And I'm like, 
oh, I loved everything else. I'm like, oh, I'm going to share this video and up and down and all around and, and just promote this thing. This is awesome. And you got, you know, Russell Wilson on there, the quarterback. And it's just superb. And he gets down to that last line. And I'm like, oh, like my ears started to bleed. And I like was ready to hit the share button. I'm like, no, dang it. How can I disclaim this? Everything's great except for this comment. And then I'm just, you know, bringing more attention to this comment. And because the fact is, Jesus, that's not the reason Jesus died. God, died, God did this so that he would be most glorified. He wasn't lacking community. He wasn't lacking, like, joy and fulfillment without us. God just simply chose to display his glory through the restoration of a fallen world. And we are the beneficiaries of that. So, understand God's covenant has been called us to live out in community. Understand this community in the body is not only about love, but also about authority. When we think about love and relationships, authority and submission brings a whole new um, dimension, if you will, to relationships. See, we culturally want to live in relationships where there's, it's just kind of a free-for-all. Where there is no, but when you enter into a relationship that there is some sort of authority submission structure, that begins to change things. That's a totally different dynamic. And so when we talk about community, God's community is not a free-for-all community. There is an authority submission structure within community. So please know that as we work through this idea of family as a church, it's not an anything-go kind of mentality, but a loving relationship underneath God's rightful authority and how He's placed us in submission to that. Let me read to you this quite indicting quote by uh, this author here, which if I could like have each of you all read this book, I would love to. This book is incredibly awesome. I have read a good bit of it and skimmed a good bit of it. But the church and the surprising offense of God's love. Um, And it's a book on the doctrines of church membership and church discipline. Um, And it's very insightful. Um, And he does a really good job of laying out scripture and how we understand God's um, doctrines of church membership and discipline. And how we understand those as an action of love not an action of tyranny or uh, an action of dictatorship, but an action of love. Let me read to you a quote from him real quick. Talking about family, church family, uh, rather, and living this out. He says, Fulfilling covenants with faithless sinners always requires a self-sacrifice. Individuals will come and go, church hop, with little care. They join churches lightly, and exit lightly, since doing so does not violate their sense of love and obligations. They don't stop to weigh the consequences of their departure on others. They don't feel the weight of their responsibility to others. They don't discuss the reasons for leaving with the pastors. They just go. They take their purchase back to the checkout counter. It's nothing personal. All in all, they ask little of others and give little in return. Jonathan Lehman, The Surprising Offense of God's Love. And it's, that's the kind of backdrop that as we kind of as a church kind of just 
set down into this morning to look at Hebrews 10. If you can imagine like the context of we're preaching and, lead, and trying to learn and understand this, that's the kind of context that our church sets in the middle of. We look at Western civilization, church culture, this is what we set in, is this lighthearted, lack of commitment kind of context. And we're all tempted to do this kind of same thing. So I want to just keep in mind as we think through that. So, now in order for us to look at this idea of family, I believe it would be helpful for us to first examine briefly kind of the antithesis of family. Right? We'll see this in Scripture. So let's go to Genesis. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and go to Genesis chapter 3 with me, 1 through 6. Chapter 3, just 1 through 6. Genesis 3. It says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beasts of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Just note her confusion already on what God had actually commanded to her. He never told her that she couldn't touch it. He told her that she couldn't eat it. But the serpent said to the woman, You shall not surely die. For God knows, listen to his words here, For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Just very quickly, because this is not our text this morning, but the wrong here is not the eating of the fruit. The wrong here is the disobedience to God's word, to God's rule, to God's covenant. But what was so bad about knowing the difference between good and evil? The knowledge of good and evil, I believe, refers to more than just knowing right and wrong. Uh, I like how Von Roberts in his book quotes W.M. Clark. He says, knowledge of good and evil has to do with the exercise of absolute moral autonomy. That is to say, knowing good and evil means choosing or determining for oneself what is right and wrong independently of God. So let me kind of just summarize that for us. What's going on in the garden is Adam and Eve want to decide for themselves, independent of God, what is right and what is wrong. That which should always and only be God's rule. God's role, rather. It's His task. It means to decide what is right and wrong. So here, Adam and Eve, when tempted by Satan, their response should have been, we trust God. We have a loyal love for God. We, have, we will be obedient to God. So the tree was a test. Would Adam and Eve trust God, loyally love Him, and be obedient to Him, worshiping the true God? Or would they trust in their own ability to discern what is right and good? Ultimately, in that moment, they chose to worship their own ability and opportunity to become like God. So Adam and Eve, we want to be independent of God. We want to be autonomous of God. The tree, hear this, was simply the bridge between solely trusting in God, loving God, and obedience to God, 
and being like God so that they could place their trust, love, and obedience in themselves. So the tree was kind of that tipping point. The sin was a choice to worship themselves instead of the one true God. It was that we want to be independent of God. We want to be autonomous. And then we see it's the same thing for the rest of human history. Physical idols will be erected, but internally man is worshiping his autonomy. I can find good and right. I can define this myself, and I can do this apart from God. We all struggle with this as well. Adam and Eve were saying that they wanted to be autonomous, that they wanted to be rulers of the world. This is what's going on when they chose to eat of the tree. Eat of the tree. They didn't want God to rule over them. They wanted to rule themselves. They were usurping God's authority. They were saying, we want this for ourselves. We want to be the boss. We want to decide what is good and what is bad. Ultimately, so that in the end, we can be worshipped. They did not want to be God's people any longer. I mean, this is what's going on. They wanted autonomy. So Adam's decision to be self-legislating or self-deciding of what is right and what is wrong made him like God in one sense, that he's able to, or that he's now deciding this, but unlike God, in that he's unable to see or foresee the consequences of his choices long term, or always be certain of the issues actually before him. So let me just very briefly, when they decide to, and when we try to decide, let me, let me put it for us, when we try to decide for ourselves what is right and wrong, independent of God, when we try to live independent of God, we're making two very fatal assumptions. One is that we can see the unintended or the future consequences of our decision of what is right and wrong. So when we say that this decision I'm getting ready to make, this is the best decision, your assumption is that you know all the consequences of that decision for the future. That's a very fatal assumption. How many of us know the future and all of the consequences of every decision that we make? Uh-uh. None of us do. The other fatal assumption that we make, and this is even more fundamental, the other assumption that we, fatal assumption that we make is that we can actually interpret the circumstances standing before us rightly. So when we see the situation in which I'm making the decision apart from God, we make the assumption that we are actually able with clarity, honesty, humility, interpret the situation that stands before us. Again, a fatal assumption. None of us have the mental capacity, the wisdom capacity, the insight to look at a situation and with assurance and confidence judge it 100% rightly in order to even begin to think about the consequences for the future. Only God alone knows the ins and outs of every situation and can see that with clarity and then know the future that comes ahead, the consequences that come ahead. So when we begin to operate autonomous of God, that's what we're saying. We're saying that I can see the situation rightly, therefore I can judge it rightly, therefore I can make the right decision apart from God. That's foolish. Do we understand how foolish we sound when we do that? This is what Adam and Eve were saying. So my question to us is where in life are you choosing to worship autonomy? 
So where do you enjoy? Where do you want and would do anything to fight to keep your autonomy? How high do you value autonomy? Give me a couple examples. Maybe you have your own set of standards and rules that you can keep instead of submitting to God's standards, but but that that I mean you cannot keep God's standards. So what happens? We create our own set of standards. Again, this is autonomy. This is me setting up a way for me to feel righteous, autonomous, or apart from God, independent of God. That's, that's you thriving on autonomy, among other things, but it's at the very least autonomy. Maybe you exercise autonomy when it comes to dealing with your sin. All right? Here's, I think, a very practical one. I'll fix this, God. I don't really need you because I can change my behavior. You're trying to act auto- like in autonomy or independent of God. I understand that autonomy doesn't always look blatantly like I'm going to decide what is right and wrong, God, and I don't want to hear you. Like, it's probably going to be a lot more subtle than that. Again, though, our behaviors are going to indicate what we're ultimately believing. So maybe you believe, maybe you act uh, independent of God because you believe ultimately that you're just as able and and, um, equipped to make those decisions as God is. I mean, I, I mean, why else would you? I mean, I mean, unless you're like something's wrong up here, you would have to believe that you can rightly assess the situation as God does in order to make the right decision, right? All right, I know I'm kind of beating this up this morning. Let's keep going. Um, understand this idea of autonomy again is rooted in our sin nature. We want to be kings. We want to be self-sufficient. And what I'm trying to do is help us understand this is, again, the backdrop or the, the culture in which we have to talk about family. We can't just parachute in the family without understanding what's surrounding and fighting against us when, it, when we talk about church family. We need to understand that everything in this life is meant, to, meant for our sanctification, right? Again, I don't need to go to proof text for this, but we see clearly everything in life God is using for our sanctification. If this is true then God is going to go after our very core problem. I mean, so you see this problem in the garden. That's a core problem for all of us. That's a a very deep-rooted issue for all of us. And if God is using everything in life to sanctify us, then God is going to orchestrate opportunities in this life to alter our desire for autonomy into a desire for submission and following. Like into a desire to be dependent on God. He's going to orchestrate life to bring about that if you're a follower of His. Now, I just want us to think. I'm just kind of bringing us through here kind of a, a train of thought. Next, what are the two institutions that God has ordained? You can tell me. Two institutions. God's ordained. God has established. Church and family, right? There's two institutions that we're going to live in. Most of us will live in some sort of marriage, all of us who are followers of Christ must live in the context of a church. Now, if these are the two institutions of God, and all Christians should be a part of one, and most will be a part of the other, at least will be impacted by the other, and God is sanctifying us, doesn't it make sense that these two environments would be there to help work on our problem of desiring autonomy? 
I'm just very, I'm convinced that one of the primary purposes for the two institutions is for God to be glorified by the restoring of our willful submission to rightful authority. Just, Just look at the Bible. Look at the language of marriage and the language of church. Both institutions talk a lot about submission and obedience. You're hard-pressed to find comments on, well, it's about having this relational love. But you, you see lots of language about submission and authority. I'll give you an example. Ephesians 4, Ephesians 5. You'll go look... You'll look at those passages. He talks about us being of one mind. He talks about us being submitting to one another. He talks about submission in marriage. Now understand that a lack of submission to the body is a lack of submission to God. Again, I don't have, I'm kind of, again, we're kind of jumping in here, but a lack of submission to the body, a lack of submission in the marriage is a lack of submission to God. We cannot be Submissive to one and not submissive to the other. On the flip side, submitting and giving preference to the body above yourself is living out a tangible display of your submission to God. So I think God has given us the institutions through which to exercise and work through this issue of autonomy. So just, just think with me very briefly here. If God has given His church to be His rulers on this earth, right? So we are His representatives. We are made in His image. We are redeemed by God. And God has set up that structure of authority for us to submit our lives to. Then in a very real sense, when we are not submitting our lives to a body, we're not submitting our lives to God. Because they're His people. So, ultimately... Man does not want to trust, love, and obey God. And so I think what God does, at the very least, gives man two institutions in which he will be graced with the opportunity to work out this idol of autonomy. God has been kind to us. So, I mean, you see what I'm saying? I mean, I hope you guys are tracking with me. We have this issue with God where we don't want to submit to Him. And so God, in His kindness, designs for us to live in a relationship with another person called marriage and he's created another community for us to live in to live ultimately this marriage relationship within as well called the church family and these two things that should everything in our life should flow to and from the church our church family then we have this awesome, grand, glorious opportunity to work out this issue of autonomy. Where we say, God, I want to submit to you. And that looks like us practically living in a submission relationship with the body. So, today, we're talking about family. So, because of the work of Christ in us and for us, let us now live as the family of God. Let us now live as the family of God. So now, let's go to Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19. And don't worry, the sermon's not just now starting, for the record. And we, have, we are just now getting to this text. But we're not going to be able to mine all of this text for all of the gold that's in it. But we'll try and cover it for the most part. 
So let's read it again, verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good deeds, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of son, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he has sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Now I think we need to understand here something. This is something that was pointed out to me over this past week that has really impacted my understanding of this passage. And that is we need to understand the shape of God's covenants. Understand first, first that God is a covenantal God, right? We know this. Gospel and kingdom, go back, listen to it. God is a covenantal God. But then when we look at God's covenants, like for example, the, the Adamic covenant or the covenant with Adam in Genesis 2 verse 15, he says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work at it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, You, sh- you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you will not eat, for in that day you eat of it you shall surely die. Now we know in this context, if you go back and read Genesis 1, 2, and 3, that, in the, that there is life in the garden. There is life in pleasure and joy and goodness and living in right relationship with God via His covenant. And at this point, His covenant is subdue the earth, rule and reign underneath my authority, and don't eat of this tree. So it's a very simple command. But then what happens if He doesn't want to live in that covenant relationship? If he doesn't want to do this, there's death if you break the covenant. There's death. There are blessings. This is the blessings of living in the body, and here is the curse. I'm sorry, blessings of living in the covenant, and here is the curses. So when we look at God's covenants, we see clearly blessings and curses. Go back and look at it. The Mosaic covenant, the Davidic covenant, the new covenant in Christ. All of them have blessings and curses. Now when we get here to Hebrews 10, I think again, I think we see the same thing going, particularly in the book of Hebrews, which is so uh, enveloped in Old Testament uh, covenants and theology. Like you just see it wrapped around. And so we get to this point. I think he's talking about this covenant And so when we get to Hebrews 10, typically, Hebrews 10 is a very popular church, or very popular passage to talk about church membership. But what happens, I think we always stop at verse 25. I've done this myself. I've preached this about church membership, and then I get to verse 25, and then I stop. But here's kind of what I think is the shape of Hebrews 10. If you read verse, the, the first part of it, 1 through 18, is all about who God is and what He's done. Then when we get to 
19 through 20, this is who we are in this covenant and how we were brought in. This is who we are and a little bit of what God has done. Then 22 through 25, we have the blessings of living faithfully in the family, of living within the covenant. So within the covenant is synonymous with living in the family. I think that's what he's getting here. And then, if we don't stop at 25 and we go on through verse 31, I think what we see there is curses of not living faithfully in the family. Again, family, living faithfully in the family, being synonymous with living faithfully in the covenant. So very quickly, let's talk about these curses. These are warnings. So I'm going to do this and we're going to kind of preach this a little out of order here. The curses. So I think what we see here, go back, study this this week. There's a, I think there's a correlation between not living faithfully in the family and the continual deliberate sinning talked about here in verse 26. He says that there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin, but instead a fearful judgment. Again, I think there's a correlation between not living faithfully in the family of God and not keeping the covenant. This again, this is the context. This is going to a group of believers, a church, how are they to live out this covenant? And this is what he says they are to do. And then when they don't do this, this is what's going to happen. Verse 26. So in a very real sense, if we do not strive to live faithfully in, in the family that God has placed us, then our perseverance and ultimately our salvation is at stake. Now I think that's a huge, I know it's a big, bold claim. Uh, I think that's what we see here in Hebrews 10. This is why church discipline is so important. I had someone say to me, it's been a while ago, but they say, well, what's the big deal with church discipline? You can remove them and then they can just go to another church. The big deal is that this person, if they're not living faithfully in this family, then what could be in store for them is verse 26 through 31. That is realizing ultimately that they were never saved. If we do not, I'm sorry, salvation is at stake. The big deal is that salvation is at stake in someone's perseverance in covenant as it relates to perseverance in the family. And the close correlation I think we see here in Hebrews 10. Look at verse 30 and 31. He says, For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge His people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So these are God's people, and in the context of living faithfully in the family, as we just talked about in the verses in 23 and 22 and, and 21, living faithfully in the family, this is what we are to do. And He says, if we do not do this, then this is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Again, we're just talking about context here. So first, see the curses of breaking the covenant. Realize that this walking in sin right into the judgment of God is in the context of living in community with the body. These verses are not just separate. It's right there in the context of this is how we live in the body. 
I think it's easy for us to justify away the body when we want to do what we want to do. We forget, right, that even as sinful as the body might possibly be, that God is still in control of that body, and God has still placed that body and its elders in authority over our lives. God has still done that. So this is part of why, like, when we join churches, that should not be done lightly. Just as if God has called us to leave, then that best not be done lightly. There's a danger here. There's a danger. I mean, realize what you're giving yourself to. It's not just, I'm signing a piece of paper, and then I can do whatever I want, and then I can leave whenever I want. It's more serious than that. It's what the text is saying. So see the curses of breaking the covenant. So, now what do we mean by faithfully living in the family? Now, I understand, like, you know, we got the t-shirts now, and this sounds so, I don't know about you, but this sounds so cultish to me, all right? Uh, Like, wow, we're officially a cult, we've got Kool-Aid, the t-shirts, and uh, and we're talking about the family, right? Now, there is a cult called the family, for the, just for the record, um, I have a book on it you can borrow, but uh, we're not going that way. I, I don't even remember what that book talked about. I read it back in seminary. Anyways, four questions. If we're going to understand living faithful in the family, four questions. Who is God? What has God done? Who are we in light of what God has done, and how do we live? So who are we? Let's go to Hebrews 10, verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence into the holy places by the blood of Jesus, the new and living way that was opened for us through the curtain, that is, through His flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God. So what, so what God has done, we see in part in those verses. We also see largely what God has done in Christ in verses 1 through 18. That's where we get to the therefore in verse 19. So that therefore is basically like saying this. In light of what God has done, and since we have a confidence into the holy places, and so on and so forth, he goes... Now, who are we and like, what can we tell about who we are from this passage? First of all, we are people covered by the blood, right? We have a confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. Who are we? We are people covered by the blood. We are sinners but are now covered by the blood. We are, dread, we are all dreadful sinners covered totally by a completely effective veneer of righteous blood. That is who we are. I would add to that who have a new heart. But we are sinners. Our flesh is still sinful. But we are completely covered by an effective veneer of righteous blood. We are also people who have one priest who preside over all of us as God's people. We are God's people with a priest over us. What else does he say? We are people with a confidence to commune with God. We are people with a confidence to commune with God. The idea here is that now we're the people of God. We're not people trying to become the people of God. We are people who are the people of God. That's what he's saying to us. We don't have to try to become the people of God. We live as the people of God. If we're the people of God by identity, then we will live as the people of God. And he's going to tell us how to live as the people of God. What is it? that indicates in our lives that we are the people of God. That's where we're going 
in the next section. But we are the people of God that have confidence to commune with God. We are confidence to be the people of God. But it's not because of what we've done. It's actually in spite of what we've done, but because of what Jesus has done. So don't think, so when we get here, we now have access to the King. We now are family of God. We have this confidence to enter into the presence of God. I don't think that's coincidence here that Paul is calling his people here brothers. I mean, we see familial language all over the New Testament about us being a family or being a, a body, how we have different parts and we're all part of the same body. I don't think it's a coincidence here that Paul brings us in even at this point. I just give a side comment here. I think ultimately our biological families point to a greater reality, and that is our spiritual family that we will have for all of eternity. So we will have biological family that when that day comes and God judges this world, where we will be separated for all of eternity. But those who we are brothers and sisters in Christ will spend all of eternity together forever. Now, that doesn't mean that we disregard biological family. I don't think that's what the text, the whole of Scripture would show us. No, we treasure family because of what it ultimately represents. It represents our family of God. We cherish it. We seek to restore it. We seek to see God's work of restoration happen in our biological families. So, just a side note there, but who are we? We are the people of God. Now, how do we live? How do we live? Hebrews 10, verse 22, he says, Because of what God has done, because of who God is, because of who you are in light of what God has done, let us draw near with the true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of son, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. I just want to point out to us some blessings real quick in this covenant. One is the true heart and full assurance of faith. This is a blessing that we get as we live in covenantal relationship with the family. This true heart, a full assurance of the faith. Like, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of the faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. These are, these are realities that are now ours because of our identity. And again, I don't have time to break all these down, but we see also the faithfulness of God in the family of God. Another blessing, we are stirred up towards following Christ. Right? Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good deeds. So we're, this is a, a blessing. We get to exercise dependence on God through dependence on the body by meeting together regularly. We're encouraged in perseverance. These are all blessings that are given to us that he talks about here. But how do we live? He says we draw near to God as a family. See, you've got to understand the context here. When he says, let us, he is speaking to a local church, saying, let us do this together. 
let us. This is not just a bold, just like, just blanket. Well, let us, and you can do this all individually. No, he's saying, let us do this together is the idea here. Drawing near to God is done as the congregation, as the local body engages in any form of worship of God. As we worship God together, we draw near to God. And in the process, we draw near to each other. Okay? Now, what is meant by worship? I think what's meant by worship is that it's anything that God has given us to do in this life should be an offering of worship before God. We're always worshiping something. Now, I just want to encourage us not to think of that the only time we're drawing near to God as a body is when we sing on Sunday morning. That's not the only time. It should not be the only time. But it's every time that we are glorifying God, we are living life for His glory, and we do that together. As we draw near to God, it draws us closer together as well. And He says that if this is who you are, if this is your identity, then this is how you're going to live. You're going to draw near to God together. And remember, we're not just event Christians, right? That's what we talked about last week. We don't live just for the event. If church is something we go to, then it's something we can leave. But the church is something we are, then it's something that we live. So we can't just draw near to God when we gather at Gym Quest on Sunday mornings at 11 o'clock. You're not, at that point, you're not the church, you're just trying to be the church. But if you are the church, then you're going to draw near to God and worship throughout the week together as a church. Because that's who you are. So, does that mean we should have like mass, you know, every morning at 11 o'clock? No. <laughs> but it means we live together. So how do we do that then? Alright, so we're talking about, this is where I think the rhythms become just very practical help for us. We're just going to take a couple of them. I want to give you some practical examples of how we as a body, when we think about family, how does that impact the way I live my life? First one, let's talk about communication. Again, these are just examples. You need to flesh this out more for yourself in your life. Communication. God is a God of communication, right? We are all called to communicate both the gospel and the truth of who God is. Communication. This is, it's not just something, hello, hello? Is my battery going dead? It's not just something that, uh, that man created, right? Communication is God created. Now how does the fact that I'm a family member impact my communication? So if I'm going to worship God with my communication, and I'm a family member, then I must listen and speak to each other in a way that honors God. Again, this is super practical, I think. But, and let me give you an example. Some of us need to go to a person that has hurt us and talk to them about it. That's what you do as a family. How can you live out the fact that you're a family member through your communication every day? Well, if there's an issue, you need to go talk. You don't just take the righteous road and overlook it. I mean, if it's still on your mind, there's probably a good chance you need to go work it out. Unless you're just willing to let it go. But even then, depending on what it is, maybe you don't need to let it go. Maybe you need to go talk. Another example. Family members don't just not show up to gatherings of the family. We don't just not come. You don't just, like, 
So let's say my family is getting together for dinner Monday night, Tuesday night, my biological family. Monday night, Tuesday night, well, Monday night, Wednesday night, Thursday night, Friday night. Would it be all right if I just not show up? Like my wife and kids are sitting there, right? My wife just said no. That was a very quick no. Like they're just like, where's dad? Well, I don't know. Like is that, does that make any sense? No. So does that show care to my family? Does it show that I think being with them is valuable and that, that, that they think being with me is valuable? No. So if you're part of the family, you, don't, you show concern for them. You show care for them. You submit to them. Another example, family members don't just leave after service without any concern for whether or not other people can tear down or without saying a proper goodbye. Again, just practical communication. How do we communicate to each other that we care for each other, that we love each other? So how does the fact that I'm a family member impact my rhythm of communication? So communication, next rhythm, eating. God has given us this daily reminder of our dependence, what you saw on the video. Ultimately, like when, when we sit down to thank God for our meals, we should be thanking God not just for food to put in our tummy, although that we should be doing that as well, or the money to pay for it, even though we should be doing that as well, but we should be reminded that we cannot be sustained apart from God. Like He is the one that is granting your sustaining, or the sustaining of your life. And it's grace to live out a rhythm of eating. Do we understand that? It's grace to us to be reminded daily that we cannot live without God. And God does that through our eating. Now, now let's think about this. Now, if I'm a family member, how does this affect my drawing near to God by eating? I think it's simple. I need to eat with my family. I don't think this is rocket science. I need to spend time eating. So if eating is more than just the I'm trying to put food in my tummy, and it's an act of worship whereby I'm remembering my dependence on God, then when we worship God through eating, remembering our dependence on God, and we do that as a family, then we are drawing near to God. If we draw near to God, He draws us closer together. I know for those of you who grew up in the church, we're talking about fellowship. We're going to have fellowship. We're going to have a fellowship. Most churches I've been in, their fellowship is just a social like, we're just going to get together and whatever. But if you do it with intentionality of why are we here for, we're here to remember that God has given us sustenance, that He is sustaining us, and that His food is a reminder. And as we gather together, we draw near to God. He's drawing us together as a family. So again, how does the fact that I'm a family member impact this? So let me give us a couple examples. I would encourage us all to alter our rhythms of life, particularly in eating, so that your whole family learns how to eat with the family of God. If all of our family, our biological family, if all our biological family ever does is eat as a biological family, then what does that communicate to your biological family about the family of God? What does that communicate? That we are separate, that we are apart, it communicates that we don't need to draw together to God in this area of our lives. Now, I'm not saying that we have to, as a church family, eat, you know, we're not having dinner at my house seven nights a week. Uh, darn it, I know. My wife would go nuts, and I probably would go nuts as well. Uh, 
but it means that we should be participating in this way often and more than just church events, right? Because we're not event Christians. We live it out every day. So what I mean, like what I mean is that eating together for this purpose on Tuesday night or Wednesday night is not enough. Do it more. Don't do it just when there's a scheduled time. Get together with each other to live out this reality. To draw near to God and worship through eating. Another example. Eat with the church family more, well, I guess I already just gave that example. Eat with the church family more than just at events. But at least at events, I would encourage you to do. All right. Next, we hold fast to our hope as a family. This one will be a little more quicker. Here, the author is appealing for a stance of unwavering fidelity to the future hope that Christians possess through Christ. He's appealing to this unwavering commitment to the future hope that Christians possess through Christ. That He will return. To hold fast to the hope we profess is to maintain a firm confidence in the objective gift of salvation God has extended to the community on the basis of Christ's priesthood and sacrifice. So what he's saying is we gather together. Let us together hold tight in an unwavering fashion to the fact that our salvation is secure in Jesus and one day He will return for us. So the idea here is that together as a family, we are meant to hold fast to our hope in the work of Christ. Do we do that? When we come together, we're reminded to hold fast of that. Do we remind each other? So we are a family that lives out with the future in mind. We talked about this in Luke. We live with the future in mind, and we do this as a family is what he's telling us to do. He's telling us to live with the future in view, to live with the work of Christ in view, and to do this as a family. So how do we live this out? I'll give you another rhythm. We talk about recreation or recreation, both. This is the rhythm of resting, restoring, recreating, right? These are things we do every day. We should be anyways. So since I'm a family member who has hope in the future work of Jesus, how do I recreate or recreate in light of this? I mean, think about this. God's restoring work, right? Like this idea of recreating. God is restoring things to the way they're meant to be. How can I live that out as a family? Think about this. If there's conflict in the body, I should seek with all I have to restore it. Going after that unity that he talks about in Ephesians uh, and Philippians. and This unity of the body, I should fight for that restoration of that. If I see a brother or sister that's falling away, like I should seek to restore that, to go after them, to pursue them. Because why? Because this is the work of Christ. This is what he, He's telling us to hold fast to this restorative process that God is doing. To live as a family in light of that. Another example, I, I should strive to rest with my church family. Why? We just get together and be lazy, right? Is that what we're supposed to do? 
I'm afraid a lot of churches are really good at that one. I should strive to rest with my church family as this is a picture of our future and eternal resting in Christ. Anytime we have unrest in this world, it's just a reminder that we cannot have rest anywhere except ultimately in Christ. And then on the flip side of that, when we do have times of rest here, it's a reminder. It's a, it's a, a taste of the rest that we have in Christ and will ultimately have for all of eternity. So when we rest, we should do that together as a family. We should have times together as a church family where we rest. So, you know, we're going to have a siesta at uh, my house. If, you know, you know, just, do you know what a siesta is? Right. Okay. All right. Some of you got it. All right. Bad joke. All right. So here's an example. This, some of this is going to freak you all out. Maybe you should go on vacation with someone as a part of the family. You should go on vacation with me and pay for me, and we'll have lots of rest when we do that. <laughs> yeah. We should go on vacation with some of the family. All right, so we're not having a church family vacation. That would be a bad thing, I think. Uh, no, but maybe we would do something like that sometime. Maybe, I mean, it wouldn't be like a, a week or two week vacation, you know, but, but maybe like a weekend thing where we get away just to rest and enjoy God's Word. And, like to live out this that we as a family hold fast to the hope of Christ that we will have eternal rest in Him, and we live that out together as a family. Now, as far as recreating, having fun together, like, I know some of this, again, just seems so simple, but we got to be thinking this way. So another example, maybe going fishing together, playing sports together. I mean, these are things that, as we do, we, we should do together as a family when we can and make an intention. Last, last point, we'll wrap up here in a second. We spur other family members on in following Christ. We spur other members on in family, or other family members on in following Christ. We spur them on. If we come to church, if we are involved in the family, and the only thing that ever crosses our mind is our own sanctification, then we drastically miss the point. Drastically miss the point. The appeal here is for continued caring for one another. Caring for one another. This is expressed in love, good works, mutual encouragement. And he says here that it's the active participation in the gatherings of the community that make this possible. What he's saying is that this, if we're going to spur each other on to love and good works, to, to do what God has called us, right? I think this good works here is what he's referring to back in Ephesians. It's the good works that God has created for us. I mean, I don't know if he's specifically appealing over to the letter in Ephesus. Of course, if Paul wrote Hebrews, then there's probably a good chance that there is. But, certainly, the idea of good works here is that which God has created us for. And if we're going to spur this on to each other, we can't do this if we never see each other. We can't do this if we're not committed to being together with each other. Again, I would encourage us, this should be more than just the events that the church corporately establishes. That's one of the reasons why we do not do like a Sunday night service. 
Like we don't want to stack up your week with service after service after service because we want you to spend time together unmotivated by the larger structure. Like where you guys are taking it upon yourself to spend time together with each other. Friday nights, Saturday nights, whatever the case may be, for this purpose, not just to watch Peyton Manning throw a good football. Although that's cool too. The idea here centers on the Christian's responsibility to exhibit practical concern for one another. Do we have practical concern for one another? Alright, so there's two contrasting principles real quick. There's the not discontinuing our meeting together. I'm sorry. There's two contrasting participles here, if I get this right. One is not discontinuing our meeting together. The other but rather encouraging one another. I think what's going on here is just indicating the importance of regularly meeting together. I just want to push that and push that and push that. So it doesn't mean we become legalistic and I have to be at church every time the doors are open. I don't think that's what he's getting at here. But because we're family, this is how we live. We live spending time together regularly. Now what's at stake? All these things, we don't do these things. What's at stake? Verse 26 through 31. That's what's at stake. All right, so let's tease this out a little bit further. How do we live this out? How do we live out this concern for each other? All right, so you have a responsibility to others. This is one thing that we should know. Guys, we have a responsibility to others. 1 Corinthians 12, 14. You guys can look that up later. We are a body with different parts and different gifts. Guys, let me encourage us. Whether here or particularly in a house gathering, when you don't care whether other members are there, then you're saying that we don't need them. When we don't give a second thought to someone who's missing among us, then what you're saying is that we don't need them. Consider how another thing. So you have a responsibility to others. Next, consider how your lifestyle will affect others. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 26 there. We'll look at that later. I think here in Hebrews we see that you cannot come and go as we please. We can't just like not show up. Like That's not being a part of the family. Another thing we see is that we have covenant leaders that they guard to make sure we are keeping the covenant. Elders. So now very quickly, let's talk about rhythms. Let's talk about the rhythm of work. Right? We all have some sort of work, whether we're a stay-at-home mom who works in that capacity or we work um, at a job where we receive a paycheck. So since my identity is that of a family member marked by concern for the growth of my brothers and sisters, how does that impact my work? Right? So if we are family members marked by concern for the growth of the family, how does that impact my work? How does that guide my work? Here a couple examples very quickly. Maybe you don't work as much so that you can gather together with your family. Right? So maybe I don't need to work 60 hours a week so that I have time to live life with my family. And I'm, I'm speaking spiritual family here, right? Church family. Maybe you don't take that job even though it includes a raise because it will take you away from your family. 
And these are, these are very practical things. But I mean, this is the things that I counsel people on all the time. And they look at me like, <gasps> you mean I shouldn't take the job? I'm going to make more money. Yeah, maybe the money isn't worth you not living in community and worth the risk of verse 26 through 31. Maybe it's not worth it. I'm not saying that in every situation the job with more money is not the, is not the route to go. But this is the weight that has to be measured. Maybe as a family member working in a place of lost people, you begin to invite those people into the family. Right? So if you're a family member and you love your family, wouldn't you want to invite people into that family? So again, these are just examples, just your workplace. How does this look for you? You've got to work through that in your specific context. So, in conclusion, I understand many of us, this might be a shift in thinking for us. Like we're going, whoa, all right, so lots to think about. Now you may have been used to thinking, I'm a Christian, I take care of my biological family, I'm supposed to look like Jesus more each day, and I go to church to hear about how to do that. Right? I think it's probably where most of us grew up at. I'm a Christian, care for my biological family, I'm supposed to live like Jesus, and I go to church to figure out how to do that. Now the Bible is telling us, I think this, the shift in perspective is that we now have an identity, and this impacts us 24-7. We can't just, it's not something we can turn on and turn off. Understand the church, I think, I, I think we can argue is the center of our lives. There's a book by Tim Chester, Steve Timmis. They argue that the church, everything should flow to and from the body. And I think that's, that's a good thing for us to really think through. It doesn't mean that the church is in higher priority than like your family. So it's not like, all right, my wife's having a baby, but I need to go to church, right? It's not what we're talking about. Like, so I'm going to, sorry, babe, I'm going to miss because I got to hear Matt preach. That's not, we're talking about things flow to and from, like our family is engulfed in the church family. You'll be thinking, you may be thinking, this is a lot to think about, it is, let me encourage you, let me encourage you this church, you cannot live out what we're talking about here, but thank God that Jesus did. Thank God that He did. Now through His power we can live out what it means to be a family. Through His blood and His covenant, we can experience the reality of family that will be ours to experience for all of eternity. You understand, we're just getting a taste of that. And that taste of that family now is still just covered with sin and selfishness and all those things. And understand that when we get glimpses of what that family looks like here, that's what it's going to look like, but in perfection, for all of eternity. And we just get a glimpse of that here. If being the family of God is not at the top of your list of priorities and excitement, then I would encourage you to examine whether or not you're following Christ. Guys, God's children love to commune with other God's children. Last statement. By the blood of Jesus Christ, our identity has changed from individualistic, self-centered, autonomous creatures into community-focused, self-sacrificing, interdependent members of God's family.
That's our identity, our identity change. It's a shift. I want to pray for us, and we'll worship one last song, and then we'll call it a Sunday. Father, thank you again for today. Father, uh, I just pray that as we think through this identity, I know that it is so much to think through and so much to accomplish. But Father, that if anything, that that drives us to our dependence on you. And Father, our also our dependence to know and study, to know and study the Word of God. And Father, I pray that uh, that your Word would not just be something that goes in one ear and out the other, but be something that we give great attention to, something that we seek to live out. Father, that we seek to also see it transform our hearts and not just our behaviors. Father, we want lasting change. And Father, for that lasting change, we must confess our dependence on you. I pray as we worship and as we reflect in these next few moments that, that you would guide us to, uh, to see where in our hearts there needs to be change. Where we are still given and committed to autonomy. Because Father, if we're going to live this life in the family, then autonomy has to go. We live lives submissive to each other. Giving preference to each other. Giving care to each other. Father, uh, I ask you to bless that effort here. And it's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Would you all stand with us?